welcome to the Communication Studies Podcast. My name is Justin Young. I am a faculty member in the School of Communication Studies. And this week, we have a first for this podcast. We have two returning guests. We've never had two returning guests at the same time before. So uh, that's kind of unique for today. Our guests this week are Shelby Swafford and Dr. Craig Gingrich Philbrook. How are you two doing? Doing well, thank you. Absolutely. Good morning. So we have the two of you back because Shelby, you just did a show in the Klein now. We've been doing a series of looking at Klein now shows, talking about them afterwards, sort of a postmortem on the show, as dark and depressing as that sounds <laughs> in some ways. And I know shows never die. They're, you know, they keep living on in different ways. But um, let's talk a little bit about your show. The show is called Reproductions, a Klein now Theater Archive Project. So why don't you start us off by giving us a, a little, you know, your log line, your uh, elevator pitch for what this show is about. Sure. Um, so this show is, um, it is an, an assembled archive of some Kleinow performances throughout Kleinow history, specifically looking at queer and feminist performances that touch on or even center reproductive politics. So um, what I mean when I say reproductive politics is essentially thinking about um, how human reproduction um, and, and all that is related to in terms of family, community, relationships, all of those things are inherently political. Um, so it's looking at how throughout Kleinow history, this, this concept of reproductive politics has really been threaded throughout different shows. And it's been a thread throughout uh, multiple of your performances, mm -hmm. correct? So what draws you to that topic particularly? Um, I think a, a couple of things. Um, first is personal experience. Um, this is uh, my, my experience within the reproductive justice movement is very much centered on my own experience um, with abortion, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and then this sort of extra layer on that is that reproductive justice helps me see how all of our, our experiences are connected, how all of these social justice movements um, for women's rights, for LGBTQ rights, for immigrants, for black folks, they're all connected, inherently connected. Uh, Craig, so you have a, a different perspective on this. You've been here a lot of the years that she's going back and pulling shows from and everything. Mm -hmm. um, when Shelby pitches this idea to you and talks to you about this idea and drawing this link between these different shows and everything, was that something you had you know, picked up on before? Was it something that you immediately went, oh, yeah, I completely see that. That's a, you know, that's a good connection you're making. Well, I think in, to some degree a combination of those things. So um, the history uh, of the Klein Hour, even, even though this this show deals with, you know, the last three decades, you know, a little bit more, um, uh, particularly drawing upon uh, autobiographical performance in, in some ways. and But even way back in the early days of, um, of the stage, the um, the lean toward social justice, even though we didn't necessarily use that same expression kind of back then, uh, has always been a part of it. And I think that's 
that's arguably um, because of even the legacy of literature being about a kind of humanizing impulse, helping people understand other people's experience. Uh, and uh, as that, as the discipline turns to, to bring autobiographical performance in, uh, it does that uh, because that's a way of including voices that may not have typically been included in the literary canon. And so what Shelby does is to tap into that history and those components of literature and autobiography as elements of the humanities that are really about helping people understand one another. All right. Well, Shelby, how do you get to the idea for this show? So, I mean, you know, art artists always come to their ideas in different ways. So what is the moment where you go, I really want to go dig into the archives and create a show around this? Well, it's, it's, it's kind of a series of happy accidents in a way. Um, I had been doing a show on the Kleinel right when the pandemic hit. It was supposed to, it was supposed to go up two weeks after. That was the Muses show. The Muses show, right. Um, so I went into the pandemic really sort of yearning for that space um, and mourning what, what could have happened in, in that show in that space. So I went into the pandemic really missing it. Um, I, I missed being in there. I missed watching performances in there. Um, so I, I was talking to a couple of friends, Colin Whitworth and Alex Davenport, both of whom were PhD students in, in the department. And uh, we decided let's just watch some archived Kleinow shows. So I took my little Kleinow key and came up to the office here and, uh, and just dug through the bins of, of VHS tapes and DVDs and the, the hard drive that we have that is, it's still chugging along. I don't know how, but she's, she's still moving. Um, and I, I pulled hours of footage off of that hard drive and brought home stacks and stacks and stacks of discs, um, digitized the discs that we didn't have digital already, um, ran them through software to reduce the HVAC noise <laughs> so I could hear some of them. And um, I would put them in a shared Dropbox folder to watch with with my friends. And um, I I happened to be talking to who, who was our assistant director, Devin Collins, about all these shows that I'm watching and how much I miss the space and also sort of reflecting on the fact that I really wish that I had gotten to do a show with with Craig in the Klein now, just, just us. I'd been in one of his shows before, um, a cast show. So in that conversation with Devin, he, he kind of looked at me and he goes, well, what if you just performed some of the stuff that you've been watching? What if you just shared it with people? Um, and it was like a light bulb moment for me. Uh, I, I hadn't, I hadn't even considered that, but then I started thinking about all the connections that that makes to, um, to, to, reproductive politics and and how we talk about in performance studies, how we talk about archives and the ephemerality of performance really in a, in a reproductive language sometimes. Um, Peggy Phelan says that performance is essentially a non-reproductive object, right? It, it, it lessens the promise of its ontology, she says, um, mm -hmm. if we try to record it, to document it, to archive it. Um, and I started thinking maybe maybe it's not so simple as that. Maybe performance can live on in a different way. We just have a, a particular expectation of what that's supposed to be, much like parents might have a particular expectation of what their children are supposed to be. Um, 
So I really started seeing all of those connections and talked to Craig about it. And when he was on board, um, it, it, it just kind of went from there. When you say you were dropping into a shared folder, were you all like zooming these together and watching them at the same time or watching them on your own and talking about them later? Oh, we have a whole system. Okay. We well, whole- enlighten us on your system. <laughs> we have a whole system. We, ha- we watch a lot of things together anyway. So it would go in the Dropbox folder. Once it's available to all of us, once they had downloaded it, we, we do an audio check, make sure everything's good. We would have our sort of our pre-show FaceTime where we talked about what we were going to, what we thought we might watch in the show. And then we would get in our group chat text thread and um, usually Colin would be like, okay, are you ready? And play. And on that play text, we would all hit play at the same time. So we could, we could chat with each other while we're watching the shows. Right. And then we would have a debrief FaceTime after where we talked about all the cool stuff that we had watched. So uh, I'm interested in this idea of, you know, what we lose when we record theater because part of your motivation, right, is the fact that you're recording shows and putting them online, streaming them online because of COVID. That sends you to the archives where you are watching recordings of shows. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems like, you know, there's an argument there for the value of yes. an archive, the value of actually recording theater, even if you do lose something in the process of recording it. Absolutely. And, and I think what I'm trying to do is, is reframe that loss. Um, because yes, in, in the recording, we don't have the sort of energy of the room, but we do, but there is still an energy there. You can still hear the audience. You can see the performer making decisions in that moment based off of the audience that they're with that night in that space, in that moment. And I'm, I was still really affected by it, right? Like I would be sitting in my bed with my laptop surrounded by cats and dogs and just weeping, <laughs> just weeping to something that was recorded in 2005, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and part of that is, is I think that the archive, the archive gives us back what our bodies cannot, right? Um, so there are some moments that we, if I, if I asked Elise, and we ha- she did this recently, reperform Nursing Mother, she did this in, in 2019. Um, the chair dance was something that she had to rework, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is a scene that's about grieving her mother and nursing her daughter, and it's done entirely in chair ballet and dancing with the chair. This is the 20 minutes of video you saw right. <laughs> prior to my show. Um, so when I think about that and when I think about seeing young Craig in the 90s and sort of this like fiery – fiery like sort of passion that I still see but it's 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 in a different way Mm -hmm. um all of the things that the archive gives us I think is that it that outweighs anything we lose by recording it I don't think we lose anything by recording I think we gain Craig I want to ask you so you've been recording these shows and I assume prior to even you these shows were being recorded um how do you use these archives? Are these used in the classroom? Are these used, are students encouraged to go in and watch these on a regular basis to kind of get uh, not just a feel for uh, the different types of shows, but, you know, some of the history of the clientele since they're playing into that? 
Yeah, they've been used in a variety of different ways in the classroom. Sometimes it's a kind of ad hoc thing where we might be talking about a particular phenomenon and, you know, I'll show because I have access to, you know, to, to my things or the, some of the performances of close friends, you know, I'll show something in class to demonstrate a principle or an idea or to start a conversation about how to make decisions as a performer. You know, so one of our kind of keywords is performance choice. And essentially what that boils down to is there are a hundred million things you can do to express this idea. Which one are you going to pick and why? And can you articulate that to yourself in such a way that you can help the audience see what you want to see, mm-hmm. um, what, what you see sort of through that choice? You know, and so it can be kind of a conversation starter. I think, uh, you know, Elise has done um, uh, a class where she really focuses on the archive uh, when she teaches directing. Uh, she would assign each student a kind of case study on a particular show to be able to articulate what its method was to the rest of the folks in the class and explain the process and uh, to choose something similar to something that they might like to do. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's that. But I do think that, that living through Shelby's encounter with the archive has really changed the way that I think about it and its availability to students. And so, you know, we haven't really had an opportunity to talk about this, but one of the things that, that she did as part of this, you, you, you kind of hear that a, m- a moment ago, she did a lot of digitizing and cleaning up. Um, you know, the, one of the problems of, of uh, a, an archive of documentation of performance is that formats change, sure. right? And they have to be translated, you know, kind of over and over and over again to, and, you know, as, um, you know, as we kind of moved as a state through a series of declining resources and, and things like that, it was, you know, that's the thing that can kind of get on the back burner. But what Shelby has really demonstrated is the value of access to the archive. And I did, I did tell her, you know, one of the things that I think might be interesting would be to make the archive more available in a sense as a whole so that students could explore it sort of following their own research questions mm-hmm. and perhaps to have even a course where the main requirement was to do precisely as Shelby has done, which is to follow a thread, an idea, a method, a topic, an approach, uh, a performer, something, sort of through the archive and construct a performance out of it, um, out of that encounter. Uh, just because it was so powerful and, you know, I know she's sitting, you know, kind of right here next to me and I've certainly said as much before, but this was an extraordinary thing that she did um, to construct this performance, to to work so carefully through all of those materials, to establish a relationship between them, you know, to deploy a variety of different strategies for making performance, some of which are um, deep in our disciplines not past, um, certainly sort of still here, um, but um, the idea of the compiled script, of treating these performances as literature, which I think they are, and making what we call a lecture recital out of them, essentially, which which is to say to make an argument by juxtaposing them in a particular way and explaining those performances in a particular way in order to illuminate an idea about performance 
and also the subject matter of the performances that she's re-engaging. Um, so I think just sort of watching her do that uh, made me think, well, what if we could get folks to work in a, in a similar method? So it's transformed my idea of what our archive is from something like a historical record, kind of like a, a family album, mm-hmm. uh, to, a, to a text, right? mm-hmm. which is to say a kind of the, the video equivalent of a textbook. Have you thought about making these publicly available? And I, I don't know what the legal issues would be around that since they're, you know, former students and faculty's uh, creative works, but, you know, publishing them to YouTube or something where people could access them. I think there are different reasons to be cautious about that. Um, some of some of it is legal in relationship to things like copyright. Mm-hmm. Um uh, when we get the rights to create an adaptation, historically, that's been um, for the three nights of the show, right? And so the rights that we paid for wouldn't wouldn't cover something like that. There are issues with uh, the mu- music that's used in shows. So we have um, arrangements uh, to to play music here on campus, right? Um, but that's not necessarily the same as streaming that Mm. right and so there are you know there are a variety of different consequences you know kind of around that and i think it you know one of the things that i would also say is that it's unfortunate that um there are there certainly are i think a group of people that i would consider bad actors in relationship to how they encounter media about social justice issues and the the kinds of um um, well, what should we say? Um, programs of intimidation that, mm-hmm. uh, that they take up in response to those things. And, that, and as an educator, that gives me pause mm-hmm. uh, because I don't want to expose students to that. And, and you know, I don't know, um, we've had some experience with that, you know, and it's not pleasant. Sure. Um, and, it, you know, it, it undermines the educational mission. And so I think there are, there are real and you know genuine serious questions about that kind of exposure, but making them available to students, um, I think, it, it, in that way that they could sort of explore them in a sense on their own, following their own interests, does seem uh, like a thing that we that we want to talk about, you know, as a as a, a program mm-hmm. uh, in performance. So Shelby, you've already touched on a little bit about, um, you know, setting down and going through the archives and coming up with this idea. I kind of wonder, did the idea formulate first and then you went and picked pieces or were pieces sticking out to you and you were figuring out how do these work together? It it was kind of both at the same time. Okay. Um, and what I mean by that is that uh, when I s- first started thinking about this idea of reperforming pieces, um, it, this is around the same time that I'm watching a lot of Craig shows mm-hmm. and um, a lot of Elise shows because they both gave me access to their personal archives. They both um, allowed me to digitize their VHS tapes of a lot of their early work. Um, and in that process, um, I... I I was really thinking about how their work speaks to each other in really interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 
Nursing Mother, which is the section, I, I performed a section of that from uh, in the show, and um, Refreshment were both two pieces that I first encountered as a student um, on the page. I hadn't seen them yet, but they were the very first performance scripts I ever read. Um, so in that way, they've, they've been with me for years. Um, I go back and read them quite often. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were already sort of swimming in, in, my, in my mind a little bit, and I started seeing the connections between them, you know, all of the sort of critiques in, in, in Craig's refreshment um, around reproductive objects and really thinking about that how we as a culture think about reproduction and how that has really material tangible, real-world effects on people, particularly queer people, right, who are seen as illegitimate from that sort of toxic cultural norm of um, heteronormativity because relationships should be built on this idea of reproduction, right? So those critiques are have, have been really important to me in thinking about my work. And um, Elise's work on... on this story about birthing, right? And the how the medical industrial complex affects our experiences of birthing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was thinking about the connections between those, I, I sort of used them as my as my grounding pieces. Mm-hmm. And then as I was watching things, I would sort of earmark or make a list. Um, and I, I would have a notes app in my phone where I could be like, 14 minutes, 52 seconds, Johnny says this, right? Um, so I could go back and sort of rewatch those things and then see how they became, how they, how they started speaking to each other. Um, and once I started hearing how they were speaking to each other as pieces on their own, then I started seeing them in an order. Okay, so if I, if I really start with this Tracy piece from Busted Flat in Baton Rouge where she's talking about this indeterminate third person where the word she in those monologues stands for multiple people, um, then that could help me think about the indeterminacy of me performing all of these other people after it. So maybe that'll help frame this. And maybe I'll start with Elise, but we're going to need a moment. So let's go into a sing-along that's very much about feminism and this this sort of 1960s feminist impulse to push against the idea that um, women and girls are have to embody a particular form of femininity that is often tied to reproduction mm-hmm. right um, so once I started seeing the, how those things talk to each other um, I could see how they could move from one piece to another so all of the writing, threading them together, really happened organically as, as I put the pieces together, so to speak. So let's talk about that sort of framing of the individual pieces, and then we'll go and talk about some of the individual pieces. Um, you know, how did you develop that framing, the, you know, starting telling the story about your childhood home and everything? How did all of that come together? Uh, was that early or was it as you were picking the pieces you start you know you said you kind of start threading them together it, did it was that the last part that came together for you of the show um so I actually wrote the opening monologue about um about my sex talk as a child my parents giving me the sex talk um I wrote that months ago 
months and months and months and months and months ago. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know where it was going at the time. I just, I just thought, <laughs> here's this ridiculous story <laughs> about um, learning about what reproduction is at seven years old in this really sort of absurd way where I get no real information, just there's sleeping without the clothes and then you get a baby. Um, <laughs> this one of the big laughs of the show, which is, you know, that from a seven-year-old's perspective, this is how sex works. This is how reproduction works, yeah. is that you take off your clothes, go to sleep, and in the morning there's a baby. There's a baby, right. It's, that's terri- That was terrifying to me as a child, right? Because, oh my God, what if I go to sleep and I wake up and there's a baby here and I didn't ask for it? Um, <laughs> um and, and once I started really working on, the, on scripting the show in earnest, uh, one of the things that I really wanted to do was bookend the show in my experience. And, and I was really purposeful about that choice because I, I'm creating a Kleinau Theater Archive. Mm-hmm. It is not the Kleinau Theater Archive. Um, folks could do this show in many, many, many different ways, following different concepts, following different themes, following different political struggles. Um, and how they've been talked about on that stage. So um, I really wanted to be purposeful about situating that in my experience um, to emphasize that fact that this is an archive assembled out of my particular location in the universe, um, my particular experiences, my particular orientation to things like home, right? That that really shapes my my interaction with the archive because... Growing up in a home, that's actually many homes, as I say in the show, um, moving around a lot as a kid, I was always sort of searching for a sense of stability, a sense of home, um, even if I didn't know it. And um, when when I sort of have that moment in, in the beginning of the pandemic where I'm, I'm really missing this space, um, I, I have this realization that like this is this is the the most stable home space I have ever had, right? Um, and I didn't want to, I, I wanted to be particular about how I was framing the Kleinau as a home space because that's coming out of my, my experience that a lot of people have that sort of orientation, but it's not the only orientation to the Kleinau or to, to performance at large. So um, starting with my experience and, and, and locating it in um, my own story and sort of how in some ways, how I end up here. Um, that was really important to me to, to emphasize that this is a, a, an archive project, not the archive project. That it's essentially a, a very personal reaction to these pieces mm-hmm. and a very personal presentation. Um, I, I guess this question is really for both of you. When you're doing something like this, um, you know, which I was thinking this morning, how do we refer to the show? And you refer to it as an archive project, but I'm thinking in, you know, film terms, because that's what I'm more familiar with. And I'm like, well, it's sort of like a remake, but it's not a remake. (laughs) You know, she's like, she is taking these and putting her own spin onto them. Um, You know, it's, um, and I started thinking, okay, well, let's think more in theater terms. Um, and I guess maybe a review to some degree of like, we're going to take individual pieces from these different shows and kind of link them together and, you know, put on a show together. Um, but I wondered, 
you know, when you're trying to put together a show like this, an archival show like this, um, how difficult is it figuring out how are we going to present these? Because I'll, I'll tell you, when you first got up on stage and started into the first piece, it took me maybe a minute before I went, oh, this is Shelby talking. This isn't Shelby speaking from somebody else's perspective because I didn't know if we were jumping straight into the first archive piece or you were, you know, speaking from your perspective. Um, and so I wonder, like, when you're doing a piece like this, um, how do you decide how to formulate it, how to structure it? And, you know, um, you know, you talked a little bit about your personal um, experience with this show, but, you know, maybe with other types of shows, how would you formulate it? I think um, if, if we want to talk about this in metaphorical terms, um, I, I like to go to music um, in that this, this show is a sort of collection of covers we could think of them as remixes if we want, in a, in a way. Um, so I, I think for me, one of the, the most freeing parts of this project was not starting from a place of, of ELP or everyday life performance, where I was, I was sitting out to perfectly re-perform as close to the original as possible as I could, but to think of it as more, more along the lines of interpretation. How can I interpret this performance, the, the text, the video, the program, the script, like w whatever I have access to, how can I interpret that um, in a way that um, honors the original while also sort of putting my own spin on it? Um, and I think that that was really important for me in that, um, you know, there's, it, it would be a sort of crumbling amount of pressure to try and do a perfect ELP of Craig. You know, you know what I mean? Or, or or any of these people. Mm -hmm. um, so that sort of frees me a little bit to, to think about how, how I might structure the thing in a way where it is true enough to the original to register, but also different enough to register that this is my take on this thing. Mm. Craig, do you, do you have anything to add? I think, you know, one of the other metaphors that I might use would be, the, uh, you know, an, unth an, an anthology film, mm -hmm. you know, uh, or something like that, uh, particularly if the subject matter is something like fables, right? We're familiar with them, but, you know, the different um, performers are going to put different spins on them. And, and that's what Shelby does. So, for example, uh, when I do refreshment originally, you know, kind of back in the 90s, I don't do it at a microphone. But I do, you know, as she does in the show, uh, but I do work with microphones in some of my other performances. And so kind of what she's done there is to, you know, take a strategy that I use in some performance and apply it to one that I didn't and to create this new thing that I completely recognize in some ways as refreshment. I mean, well, in many ways as refreshment, but also see something new in, you know, a, a new potential in. Uh, so... You know, I think when you're kind of asking sort of about sequence in, in some senses, you know, she does a good job of kind of talking with us between, right, and being really present in those moments right, where she's kind of explaining her kind of why we're going to go to the next one, mm -hmm. right, um, or you know, how it might differ a little bit emotionally or to some degree potentially with a kind of strategy, um, 
And then also uh, those performances really have different characters. I don't mean like characters in the sense of people that she's playing, but different uh, approaches, right? So there's the sing-along, there's the work at the microphone, there's a, a kind of abstract uh, work with a prop, you know, when uh, she's doing Rebecca Walker's piece. Uh, there's the poetic autobiography, uh, autoethnography when she's doing Elise. There's the interrupted, um, remixed audio, you know, of uh, Johnny Gray's performance and so on. So part of what she's doing is finding the kind of what she wants to bring out in those pieces and finding the mechanism for doing that. So there are um, there are a variety of choices that she's bringing to bear to try to make those those moments uh, accessible to audiences, and I do think it. You know, uh, you say kind of, kind of takes a minute to think about. Um, you know, is is this Shelby or is she performing someone kind of right there in the you know kind of in that first uh, um, performance? And that's the that's the beauty of this older style that we call the lecture recital. Mm-hmm. Where um, and and there were there were programs that required this um, kind of performance as a graduate as a, like can you graduate? It was a competency to make an argument that linked different pieces of literature uh, to perform them in appropriate ways and to have transitions between them that helped make your argument accessible. Right? And so uh, she does that, I think, with real uh, integrity uh, in the argument, and and also um, just a, a, a just a kind of stylistic precision that made so that certainly made me very happy as an audience member, and then also as a co-director, in the sense that you know she arrives you know to rehearsal with this beautiful script, and so we just really in a way get to play for four weeks, you know, thinking about developing that in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about the pieces um, because I think as Craig noted there's some very different pieces very different in style pieces um, and I think that's part of what makes the show work so well is that diversity in the style of the pieces um, you know as you transition from one to the next and you sort of transition not only in the way that you're speaking to us, but also often in the way that you're holding yourself physically and everything. And I'm sure that was a conscious decision. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, it, it's, it's very interesting why these particular pieces, and I know we could speak for several hours probably <laughs> about why um, all the different pieces, but I, I wonder maybe maybe let's kind of single out a, a few pieces. Um, which piece f- for you came most easily? Which piece, like, and maybe not even from a performance standpoint, but, like, it, it slotted itself in there super easily, and you were like, okay, I, I have a pretty good idea how I'm going to approach this one. Um, it was it was the nursing mother section and refreshment section. Okay. Um, they, they were sort of my, my anchor pieces that I knew... And I had a clear idea of how I was going to perform them from the beginning, um, because that's surprising. Because the the nursing mother one is the like emotional like heart of the of the piece in a lot of ways yeah. to me. And uh, you know, it was the piece I was watching, going, "Oh man, this is 
this is heavy to, you know, borrow back to the future term. This is like really heavy to be trying to do this on stage mm-hmm. and like get through this entire piece. Um, so, um, was it just that it's so connected to you personally that it, it felt easy to approach that one? Yes. And, and also I will say just on a, on a logistical level, um, I have spent probably the most time with Craig and Elise. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I could hear their voices in my head as I was performing them and that, and I got to that place with everyone where, where as I was performing them, I could hear the recording in my head and I could hear what they were doing. Um, but it was almost immediate for Craig and Elise for me. Um, I think partially because I've spent so much time with them and, and because I spent so much time with those scripts, I've read them. I, I can't tell you how many times I've read those scripts in the last eight years. <laughs> um, it's, it's probably in the dozens. Um, so th- in that way, they, they were the ones that sort of pulled me in the, the most in a way that felt, in a way that just felt right. Mm-hmm. Um, not that the others didn't also feel right. Sure. Um, but those were sort of the first ones that helped me see how the other ones could also feel right. Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly some parts are going to come easier than others. And <laughs> it's nothing, it's not a criticism of those pieces in any way, right? Um, Craig, let's talk a, about refreshment. Um, have you had other students perform this piece before? There's a period of time when uh, people on the forensic circuit, the public speaking competition circuit, are performing it um, with some regularity, um, and um, so I would I knew that people were you know were doing that. I have had people, I've seen people perform other pieces by me, mm. um, but this was the first time I saw someone perform refreshment. What is that experience like? having somebody perform a piece because I feel like all art is personal, but some art is more personal and a lot of performance studies is very personal. Um, and this piece particularly uh, is a very personal piece. Um, what is that experience like? Because it feels different than somebody performing, um, you know, had you written Hamlet, I'm sure like, you know, (laughs) that would be a very different experience because that's not you up there on stage that they're performing. Yeah. Um, Well, I, you know, it it might help, you know, just, just to, to give the listeners some context. So this is a piece that tells a story about being at a pride parade. uh, Well, actually at a brunch before going to pride with some friends in New York. And we're kind of going around the table talking about what we, what we like most about the pride parade uh, and kind of sharing stories about that. So it kind of takes up themes of storytelling and how things come toward us in stories and we don't know how they're going to change us. And um, it, it juxtaposes, it kind of, it, it, it provides an explanation of why I'm not um, uh, walking along um, in the parade with friends mm-hmm. And um, having to do with a, a, a bashing experience that uh, injured my feet uh, in, a, in a long-term way uh, when I was in seventh grade. And so, and then kind of takes that experience and juxtaposes it with um, the, a, a button, a political button that was popular at that time that said neuter, newt. Because Newt Gingrich was doing a lot of 
uh, homophobic work. And so it kind of takes that kind of reproductive threat of neutering and kind of plays with his name, mm-hmm. right, in an alliteration kind of context. And then also the experience of basically having to walk through a pool of blood. Someone's been injured um, uh, at the parade mm-hmm. uh, and, and not knowing how that's going to change me. Right when it comes to me, so the, the, it's touching upon a number of different themes. Watching Shelby do it certainly takes me back to those moments in a way that simply rereading it or performing it myself never did. Um, uh, I I definitely experienced it as a a text that I was performing and I was emotionally attached to it. Absolutely. Um, this is a performance I did at a, a couple of different places um, and uh, kind of back in the day when I was kind of taking things around a little bit more. And so watching her do it was was like watching a poetic echo of all of the elements of it that I couldn't see when I was living through it in my own body. Um, so that's kind of abstract. I guess what I mean by that is I, you know, I, I, I could hear the, the catches in her voice, the shifts, you know, kind of from speaking sort of somewhat normally <laughs> to the degree that I ever sort of speak somewhat normally in performance to these sort of quieter moments, you know, when she whispers into the microphone, some advice to Newt how to survive being bashed that kind of comes from my experience and um it um it was harrowing in its own way um i would shake a little bit you know when performing it? when watching or, her oh watching it. her okay um and um you know, some of that's kind of about reliving it. Some of it's just about the tenderness with which she does it and that sense of what it, you know, whenever we perform anything, we're saying this matters to us in some way, right? Mm-hmm. And to feel that, you know, um, that it was an important thing to do. And then there was also this interesting element of it because it's so the piece itself is so much about not being able to anticipate how things will change us. And when I was a young person having that experience at the parade and writing about it and taking that performance around, one of the things that I never anticipated was seeing a an, an extraordinary graduate student perform it back to me 30 years later. Mm-hmm. It's just not a thing I anticipated at all that it would have that kind of a, a life um, and that I would get to see it come back to me in this form of an echo. Um, so it was, it, was a, it was a wonderful experience. So Shelby, how do you go about doing that performance? Because as you noted, you're you're sort of doing a cover. You're not mimicking, you know, exactly. And we should note for people listening that at times you show clips of the original performers Mm -hmm. doing the piece. So we can get that sort of, you know, as Craig noted, the juxtaposition between the two different sort of takes on it. Um, But what, what's it like, uh, 
you know, trying to figure out how am I going to perform this, um, you know, with my, my mentor in the audience <laughs> watching me and everything and put my own spin on this while also being, um, you know, being respectful of the piece and, you know, what it has to say. Well, I think the first thing that I would say is, is that um, Craig makes it really easy to, to be vulnerable on stage. Um, and this was, this was a moment of vulnerability for me um, in that I was sort of taking this text that, that I love that is so, so very personal to Craig um, and 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 doing it from my body in in a way that's going to to just from that fact be be different from the original. Um, Craig makes it really easy to to get in there and feel like it's okay if it's not perfect the first time. Um, like we get that that little clip from another one of Craig's shows later on in the show where he says, um, "You have to be willing to fail," and I just sort of use that as my mantra mm -hmm. during the entire rehearsal process. Um, that the only way I'm going to grow and change as a performer is if I'm willing to fail. Um, so that was sort of square one, um, being willing to just be completely vulnerable, be, be willing to fail at this. Um, and then seeing, seeing how he helped me, um, move through that process in a way where he helped me see the choices that I was making and, and, and think about those choices in a really careful way. So on one level, this sort of process of, of going about performing this was completely just reframing my, my orientation to this because I, I very much am a person that likes everything to be perfect and everything to be, to be in a place right? Um, You're in the wrong field. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so um, really fighting against that impulse and learn, learning how to, learning how to reorient myself to, to performance in this way um, was, was a big part of it. And, and I think the other part of it is that I studied. Um, I studied a lot. Mm -hmm. I watched those performances a lot. Um, and the reason I did that was not so I could recreate them, but so I could think more carefully about the choices they were making. Because if I can understand the choices they are making and why they're making them or why they might be making them, then I can, I can better make choices for my reperformance of it, right? Um, so every gesture of Craig's, I mapped them out on my script the first time. I mapped out all of Craig's gestures. So the first time I went in there and I was sort of running through it by myself, I could get a feel of what Craig's gestures were and how, knowing that I wanted to do it at the microphone, how those might shift, how they might shift a little bit in my body. Um, when you say mapping them out, are you writing little stage directions in the no, in the margin so oh, that yeah. you know at this point he raises his right hand yeah. and okay. exactly. So my my the first version of my script, um, and I'm a, I'm a big like underliner bracketer person. So like the. The underlines or emphases, the brackets might be a, sh a shift in, in vocal cadence or or um, or some sort of element of vocal performance. And yeah, uh, here raises fist. Here fist is down. Um, here gestures towards stage right. 
um, while, while looking at the stage, like I'm like to precise, like where, where are Craig's eyes and whether, and I do this for all of them, Mm -hmm. for all of them. Um, and the reason I did that again was not so I could perfectly reperform it, but so I could have a better, fuller understanding of it because it's only from that place of, of, of understanding, um, that I could make choices ethically, right? I, I wasn't going to, you know, here we're going to do refreshment, but as a dance party. Um, <laughs> I mean, that would be a fascinating take. <laughs> um, so, so not to shift it completely from what it was, but how can I communicate to the audience the things about it that really struck me mm-hmm. um, and, and maybe help um, the audience also take those things away. Is that intimidating and challenging? Cause I feel like this is an issue a lot of actors are facing now. Um, and you know, can I perform something that I'm not? And so we see this a lot with, is this actor allowed to play LGBTQ? If they're not, is this actor allowed to play somebody of a different race? Um, and you're playing a, a, a gay man on stage, mm-hmm. you know, or at least re, reenacting this piece um, and trying to convey those emotions that are very linked to that, I, w- I would say, um, that, that experience all the way back to his childhood as that story is told. Um, how, how do you approach that? Because that's got to be somewhat in, intimidating, um, I mean, as an actor, you are always playing somebody different, even if you're playing a, a a woman of your age and your height and everything, you're still playing somebody different than you. Um, but was that at all challenging or intimidating in the process? Well, well, sure. I, I would say that there was um, maybe some self-intimidation mm-hmm. in that, like, Craig, Craig and, and other folks never made me feel intimidated or pressured about reperforming their pieces. Um, so there was an internal pressure, sure. But I, I thought about this a lot in terms of um, Dwight Conkergood, who is a performance ethnographer, um, talks about dialogic performance and and as, as being sort of the goal of, of being able to perform across difference in a way that is in dialogue with that other person, um, not eclipsing their experience, um, not fetishizing it, um, not, not copping out, right, right. That would be the other option is to, is to cop out and not perform anything by anyone who is not a, a, a young white woman, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I'm I'm performing it across class differences, um, across gender differences, sexuality differences, um, region differences, right? Elise is from Canada. <laughs> Right, it's very different from my southern draw tongue. <laughs> um, so, it, thinking about it in terms of a dialogic performance, how can I be, how can I be in dialogue with with these folks? And on the days that I was performing by myself in the theater, I talked to them, like by, by myself, just like have a hypothetical conversation with Rebecca, or with Elise, or with Craig. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, like literally have that conversation with myself to be like, okay, so where is this coming from? This choice is made in this moment. Why? Mm-hmm. Why do I think that is? Um, or this language really has a, is, is loaded, 
right? It's, it's a very loaded moment. So how can I help emphasize that in my performance of it? Um, so I, I wasn't going to cop out, right? Um, so, so thinking about it in terms of, of forming that dialogue, that it was never about me sort of taking their place, but me being in conversation with them in that moment, um, which, which is, I think, where we get to the point of, of folks maybe being like, oh, I can, I can hear Craig in that moment. I can hear Elise in that moment. That just sounded like Rebecca. Um, because I was really trying to not mimic them. I was trying to have them with me in that moment on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have to ask, I'm sitting in the audience Thursday night, the first night of the performance, Sitting in front of me are Craig and Johnny and Rebecca and Elise. Mm-hmm. That's got to be somewhat intimidating. <laughs> um, I, I didn't notice you looking over to that section of the uh, crowd that often, um, at least from my perspective. And I thought, nor would I. <laughs> I just wouldn't want to know. <laughs> Uh, if they want to tell me afterwards I butchered their piece, then fine, but not while I'm up here doing it. Um what was that experience like knowing that, you know, not only were you doing these pieces and these are people that you know and people you admire and have, you know, a relationship with and everything, um, but that they're going to be in the audience watching it. You know, you're not doing something somebody wrote 50 years ago, so they're not here to witness it. You're doing something that's, you know, within lived memory. Um what was that experience like on, on stage or even preparing to go on stage for that? Um, in many ways, that was my dream audience. I, I, I'm so, I was so glad that all of them were there at the same time. Um, Nathan, Elise, Craig, Johnny, Rebecca, all all of them Mm -hmm. just sitting there. Um, and, and part of the reason that felt so, so good for me as a performer is because I knew that I knew that they knew every performance I was referencing, mm-hmm. most of them, right? Um, that Elise and Craig have been here for, for the entire history that I'm sort of laying out in front of the audience here. Um, so I knew that they would have their own particular orientations to, to the things I'm talking about, even in ways that I don't necessarily always know, right? So um, there's a moment where, Craig and I are talking about this line that I have about a man in a floral silk robe applying his makeup. He's like, I think that's Eric Dishman, who I mentioned in the previous scene, right? So like there are all these connections and threads that they're seeing that I'm not. And and knowing that knowing that I get I got to help bring some of those things back for them was it was an honor. Um mm-hmm. and I, I felt I felt overwhelmed with with the love and and um an encouraging response that they gave me. Uh, I, I could hear it. I could feel it in the audience. Um, you, you, I could sort of hear when the laughter was really coming from that section. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, that's for my, that's for my Klein people. They know what I'm talking about here. <laughs> um, yeah, a little bit, a little bit of pressure, but also mostly just these folks have, have never, have never made me feel anything other than supported and encouraged to mm-hmm. do the, the work that I want to do. So I think it, in another world where maybe, you know, these are folks who haven't been as, as encouraging and supportive. Um, 
I could, I could feel the fear maybe a little bit more, but, um, once I got on stage, I didn't feel fear. I was just so glad that they were there, that I could feel their presence in the audience. Craig, you've already talked a little bit about seeing your piece performed and everything, but I kind of wonder what the experience was like with your colleagues, many of whom you've worked with for years, um, have deep personal relationships, friendships with, um, watching this with them and the sort of, um, sort of time capsule it had to be in a lot of ways of, as Shelby noted, remembering, oh, this reference is to this person when they did this particular show and that montage of clips near the end where, you know, you're really kind of getting lots of different points in history all at the same time. Um, what was that experience like for you? It was definitely a, a kind of, well, we could talk about it as a sort of memory lane experience. Absolutely. But I feel like, you know, part of what, what happens for me is that I hear their voices kind of coming through Shelby. Um, and so, for example, one of the um, pieces, you know, from Tracy Stevenson Schaefer's Busted Flat in Baton Rouge, um, uh, you know, Tracy and I went to school together. We, we, we've taught at the same university on Long Island. You know, we've been friends for a very, very long time. And I hear Tracy, particularly in this one run of um, where Shelby's listing the Southern food that, they, <laughs> you know, that you know, Janice and she grew up on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in another place, you know, when she's talking about Southern politeness, you know, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, thank you, ma'am. And, um, and I, it, it, it's uncanny, you know, to kind of have their... Their bodies there. There's a moment in Nursing Mother where Shelby does this sort of characteristic snapping fingers gesture of um, Elise's um, that I've seen her use, uh, and and she's it's like in the right time, and it's it it and I'm you know I'm sitting next to Elise, and Elise is sort of leaning on my shoulder, kind of moved by this experience, and and it. You know, so it has that quality of, look, there, something is restored and something is, something new is being made all at the same time. Isn't that marvelous? And isn't that what performance sort of is, you know, always? You know, something being restored and something being made, you know, for the first time. Um, So, you know, we we use the word magical a lot, (laughs) you know, it felt, it felt magic. Um, and you know, as any, you know, magician or illusionist could tell you, that's a construction that takes a long time to produce. It's the result of care and things kind of have to go right. And you have to surrender yourself to it as a performer and just kind of let it happen all at the same time, that kind of double bind between precise control and pure presence in the moment um, and, and so as much as we might have all been watching for, oh, I remember when that happened or, oh, I remember when I did this performance the first time, I think we're also watching and what Shelby's hearing, you know, is, is performance itself and the pleasure of performance itself, the, the meaningfulness of that as a human capacity, 
um, to remember, to reflect, to, um, to think seriously about experience by virtue of representing it and remembering that re- representing experience is itself an experience, mm-hmm. right? Um, taking in those representations is itself an experience. So just kind of in the wash of all of that together, um, what, what was lovely, you know? Um, yeah. There's a moment when um, Shelby is about to perform Rebecca where the light shifts and she's behind this chair that she's about to begin spinning on one of its legs. And it reminds me, you know, she, she puts her hand on the back of the chair and, and, and turns to stage left. And there's this moment of getting set to do it. It's subtle, it hap- but it happens every night. Mm-hmm. And it's very much like watching a gymnast kind of take that set before launching, mm-hmm. you know, uh, into the routine or toward the vault, you know, or whatever it is. There's that moment of focus. And so I think as much as anything else, we're also watching her precision and her craft in how she is managing to shift from all of these. So, you know, yes, we're interested in the performances of ourselves and of one another, but also just watching Shelby as a craftsperson working, you know, sort of through all of this, making this thing that looks like magic that is really the result of precise control and yielding to the moment all at one time, you know. So we are in in some ways doing our share of that. Mm-hmm. which is to say we are noticing everything and taking it all in <laughs> and being really observant. And we're also letting it wash over us and trying to be there in the moment and just experience the pleasure of it. I would say that's probably a universal experience across us, you know, just by, you know, just by knowing these folks and kind of observing their bodies as they're, <laughs> you know, as we're all watching together. Yeah. You, you talk about that moment of preparing um, and getting ready as you're about to go into the next piece and everything, and you compare it to, uh, you know, a, a gymnast, an Olympic athlete or something, and there's always that moment, you know, I always love where the gymnast stands there and sometimes they put their hand on their stomach and you're like, what's, is that settling butterflies? Is that, <laughs> is that just like, okay, now suck, sucking your stomach before you try to do a triple, <laughs> I don't know. I can't name a gymnastics move, <laughs> uh, but you know, and there is that, that moment, right? Like it, on stage and everything as well. I'm about to go do something. And once I start this, I can't pull out of it. You know, it's running towards the vault. I can't stop halfway and go back and try it again. I have to follow through, you know, stick it or or fall. Um, and, you know, there's something exciting about that. Um, I think that kind of leads to um, my next to last question here, which is um, when you are, we've talked about this being a remix, a cover, um, it, it's certainly something you know, reminiscent of what we might see in a, a literary anthology, a film anthology, and these other things, but it is still theater, it is still performance, it is still the stage, which makes it somehow unique from all those, you know, all, 
all media being somehow different in bringing unique qualities. Um, what do you feel having gone through this process of doing an archival project and, you know, trying to cover remix these pieces? What do you feel that performance brings uniquely to this process? Versus say, had you just taken these clips and edited them together? (laughs) Well, in, in performance studies, we, we often talk about um, performance as, as a way of knowing, right? As a way of learning, right? Embodied learning, putting it in your body, you learn it differently. You understand it differently, right? That's why in our CMST 201 class, we perform literature from various cultures because it, it is a way to learn about the world. And then performing it on a stage for an audience is a way for the audience to engage in that process of learning with you, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I understand these texts in a whole new way than just seeing them on the page or even just watching the video, right? Um, because there's something that happens when you spend four weeks putting these words into your body, committing them to memory, um, figuring out how your body moves with them in a way that is that echoes the original, that, that moves away from the original, whatever that might be, um, that, that that is a process of, of really intense affective learning for me um, in that um, in, in putting it on stage for an audience, I understand it much, much deeper much more, much with much more nuance, right? And, and feel connections to them in a way that I hadn't before. Um, and I hope, I hope that by bringing them back and putting them on a stage, more people will watch them, right? That That's just sort of a, a baseline, a baseline goal of mine. I want this work to be seen, mm-hmm. right? And um, sure, we could do like a Kleinow movie night, a, a Kleinow show night where I just show videos of, of past shows, I would actually like to do that at some point, but that is not, it's not, it's fundamentally different. It is not the same thing. And I don't know that audiences would have been engaged in the same way. Mm-hmm. And then there's also sort of the logistic issues of, well, we don't always have the best recordings, right? Um, and, and sometimes the recording is just good enough to where I can hear the words and I can see the general movements, but I might not be able to read all the facial expressions. Or there might be a moment where, um, the performer is being recorded and they're referencing something that's happening on the other side of the stage. We don't see what's happening over there, right? Um, so really, a, a big part of this is, well, let's look at the script, let's look at the video, let's talk to them about these pieces, um, and let's let's see what, what sort of picture I can create from all of these pieces together. If we're never going to be able to recreate the sort of ephemeral moment of performance, well, let's try to create something new mm-hmm. by, by using the remnants that we do have and that we should have if we are, if we are invested in performance and, and the future of performance because archiving it is a way to invest in the future of, of what we do. Um, it's, it's a pedagogical tool. It's a way to show here's what we've done, here's what we've done, here's, here's how it's scholarship, um, here's how we can learn from it. Um, and... and and all of those things are, are really about valuing, valuing the space and valuing what we do in performance. So in that way, I just, 
I feel like I'm on a little treatise about like why performance is so important, but, but really truly it, it, it is. I mean, I don't know that, I don't know that you would have watched, you know, refreshment ever. Um, had I not included a section of it and you've never seen, you know, the original, um, but you've seen a version of it now. Mm-hmm. And, and knowing that people are walking away with a version of these performances is enough for me. No, I mean, definitely. Um, if you don't put it on YouTube, like, I, I don't know, <laughs> I, I just don't know that I ever have access to it, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you are birthing new life into it in, in that way, you know. I, I'm probably not going to go into the Klein Out archives because, you know, one, I didn't know that there were Klein Out archives <laughs> prior to your show. Um, but, you know, two, it's also not my area, you know. Um, so, um yeah, I mean, I think that makes perfect sense. And I think that's true of a lot of the audience. You know, even if they were familiar with one piece or two pieces out there, there were pieces they certainly were being exposed to for the first time. Um, I've told you this off air that I really enjoyed the show. Thank um, you so much. I thought it was very good. Um, I um, thought it was very emotionally moving in parts. Um and, you know, there were parts that I was not only emotionally moved in, but also sort of, well, I'm really impressed. That was obviously very hard to pull that off and everything. And I'm no expert on performance, but I do know a bit about acting and knowing what it's like to be up there and convey that emotion to an audience. And, um, you know, I was, I was impressed with it. Um, I also thought it was very funny and I've told you that <laughs> one of my favorite moments and I think maybe one of my favorite moments cause um, I'm always very impressed when people can sneak up on me with something, when they can make a bigger point with something that feels frivolous in the moment. Um, and I always think like really great writers, you know, do this with their writing. They, you get to a point oh, here, Bill falls down. And then 10 pages later, you're reading and you put the book down, you go, damn, he tricked me. Like that actually (laughs) really was significant. And here I I laughed at it. And now I feel like a horrible person for laughing at Bill falling down. (laughs) Um, But you get to the point late in the show where you have a conversation with one of the stage lights. And, um, you know, you have people backstage um, manning the light and everything. And so it's it's acknowledging you and responding to you and everything. Um, but that really, to me, after we got past that part and everything, I was like, wow, okay, that was really clever because it really solidified what I felt like was an important part of it was the significance of the client now. The significance of it as a place, which you had touched on throughout the entire show, but when you get to that part, you realize, oh no, no, she's she's putting the client out as a as a literal character mm-hmm. into this, um, and I was very impressed with that, and uh, I really enjoyed that part uh, because it was both funny and it also was like uh, emotionally resonant. Um, but I kind of you, you did say. That comes from a piece, actually. Yes, that that moment is, um, it's one of my favorites. It's from Lindsay Greer. Um, She's a a former PhD student in the department. Um, She did a show called Toil and Rubble, Media in Ruins, which was co-directed by Craig. 
Um, and I love that moment where she, she talks to the light. She is in this persona, uh, Lucida Fox, the media medium who sort of speaks to the ghosts of old technology. And, you know, we, we, we get lots of stuff about the VCRs and all of this, all of these things, but that moment when she stops and talks to the lights was one of my favorites as an audience member, mm -hmm. um, because it's, it's, it's charming, it's smart, it's funny. And, and Lindsay in that moment is very sort of over the top, like I'm performing, you know? Um, and, and I didn't go fully there in that moment because it's, it's, it's a little bit more slippery when, when I'm moving from me into Lindsay into Jen Tudor, who's the, the last section is from one of her shows. Um, it, I love that moment as an audience member. I love it even more as a performer. Um, Jesse gave so much life to the lights as they as they answered back to me in their little blinks this is jesse snyder jesse snyder yeah he's our assistant technical director he was running lights for for me for the show yeah um you know just a, a great show overall Thank um you so much. and i think um you know a fun way to breathe life back into some of these pieces that you know um i know nothing's ever truly dead um, even if we do call this a postmortem, nothing's <laughs> truly ever dead, but you know, that's part of why things keep living, right? Mm -hmm. People bring them back and they breathe new life into them and everything. And, um, you know, Craig's peace can live on long after Craig, hopefully. And, you know, that's a, a pretty impressive legacy to have. And, you know, you're now part of that legacy, um, one final question. Have you given thought to the idea that, you know, 30 years from now, some PhD student <laughs> may be going through the archives looking at this show and wanting to use part of it? Well, I, I hope so. I mean, I, one, I hope, I hope the Kleinau is still alive and thriving 30 years from now. And there are lots of PhD students who are wanting to create performance in whatever that space looks like when it is transformed again. Um, but I mean, yeah, I, I hope so. I think that's part of part of my whole point um, is that we we should get to do that, and and that as as students of performance, that we we should want to do that, right? Because we learn so much from from these performances that we wouldn't get to watch otherwise. Um, so so in that regard, yeah, I hope so. All right. Well, um, I know we've taken up quite a bit of your time today and everything, but thank you to both of you, uh, Shelby and Craig. Um, the show was Reproductions, uh, Kleinow Theater Archive Project. Make sure I get the exact title <laughs> there correct. Um, and Shelby, um, if people want to know more about your work and everything, is there... Do you have a, a website, portfolio, something people can check out? Um, folks can email me. I'm, okay. I'm a little bit old school. I don't have like a fancy website or anything. Um, but my email is on the Com Studies uh, website under under the graduate assistance. Um, so folks can feel free to email me directly, and I'm happy to chat about the show, about the Kleino archives, about performance stuff. Um, but yeah, no, no like LinkedIn or anything. Okay, behind the times. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, you, you like the analog nature Absolutely. of the stage, so yeah. that just makes sense for you. <laughs> um, all right. Thank you to both of you. Thank you for everyone tuning in and listening. Um, we'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Justin.